You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you on your favorite current affairs and culture show. Lots to get through in our hour today. Uh, We're going to be talking diplomacy. We're talking photography. We're going to be talking... Uh, a little bit about what's going on in the event space. Uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, we're going to be starting the show with a guest, uh, someone uh, who is very uh, articulate. He knows about all sorts of stuff, particularly in uh, the international relations space uh, and in the South African historical space and the African historical space. Uh, he actually used to be uh, an editor for BBC Africa. Uh, he's a writer and uh, has written a number of books and uh, is an activist and uh, has been involved in uh, political things. His name is Martin Plout, and he joins us from London today. Martin, welcome to the New Blue Review. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I, I wanted to talk to you today. Uh, you know, you've been writing a lot of uh, books about history, about South African uh, history uh, in particular lately. And I, I was particularly taken with the, your latest one, which is called... Uh, 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 promise and despair. And I think most South Africans will understand things like voting rights, particularly for black people, as have being a thing that came around in 1994. But what you write about in this book is is actually that there was a point in history where that wasn't the case. So what I'd like to ask is, why did you uh, decide to, to write about this? And uh, you know, wh- where did you get the idea from? Well, to be honest with you, the the issue came about because, um, you know, it was something of a surprise to me. I mean, I'd worked on, on South Africa for a long time. I, I was born there, you know, grew up there, educated there. Um, but I, it actually came as a surprise to me and, frankly, to many other South Africans that there was a non-racial vote long, long, long before Nelson Mandela. And when I began to look, look at it, um, it, I realized that it actually went back to the 1830s. And in the Cape, there was a vote which anybody could participate in, um, which allowed people, well, let's be honest, men are, who had wealth and property to vote irrespective of their race. And that continued right through for 100 years. And uh, it was just something that uh, really got uh, fascinated me. Then I realized that there had been a delegation to Britain to try to maintain this vote when in the run-up to the Union of South Africa following the Boer War. Now, that there was a big delegation came over with a constitution in 1909 to Britain to try and get a new constitution ratified. That constitution would have stripped away the right of people outside of the Cape to have a vote uh, irrespective of race. And that really fascinated me. Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, uh, people could vote, but were they able to stand for public office as well? I mean, uh, black people. Indeed. There was absolutely no distinction. Race was not an issue. And there were, um, uh, you know, at least six constituencies in uh, the the Cape uh, in which you could not be elected if you did not have the uh, the African vote. Um, I mean, it, you know, you just you just wouldn't get enough support. Um, and this really allowed people to they took 
African and coloured people, and by which I mean mixed race people's votes, very seriously. Obviously, I mean you know, surprise, surprise. If uh, if you can rely on people's votes, you take them seriously. And they, I mean, I'm actually currently working on the biography of somebody who is the very first uh, person of colour to be elected in South Africa. His name is uh, Abdurrahman, Dr. Abdurrahman, a uh, somebody who actually came from the Cape. He was uh, a Muslim. Uh, an incredible man, went off to Glasgow, becomes a, a fully qualified um, Scottish doctor, marries a Scottish girl, bring, comes back to South Africa. In 1904, he is elected to the city council. And he's on the city council of Cape Town for 30-odd years. Um, he's then on the provincial council. He's held in great esteem. He knows Gandhi. He knows uh, the first leader of the Labour Party, Keir Hardy. Um, so the British Labour Party, I mean, and he is really an extraordinary figure. So people got into, began to come into power and other people began to stand uh, for these positions. And there then came um, in, in after the, uh, essentially after the First World War, a big struggle between two forms of nationalism. One was the Afrikaner nationalism, which had suffered so badly. The Afrikaners had suffered terribly during the Boer War. Um, when they were crushed by the British and, you know, really in, in appalling circumstances. And they were absolutely determined that they would never allow this to, to happen again. They were going to be in charge of this country that there was now a united uh, country. And um, they came up against the, the rising tide of African and colored and Indian nationalism, which basically said, hang on, you know, we also live here. We also have rights. And these conflicting positions uh, really came up against each other in the 1930s. And finally, the black people of South Africa were actually stripped of their vote. And that is something, I mean, I don't know anywhere else that it's happened in the world where you actually had a vote and then it was taken away from you. I mean, democratic rights are quite often taken away from people. But the idea that you would actually take away the right of people to vote was extraordinary. And um, that's what happened. And uh, first the Africans lost the vote, and then later in the 1950s, under apartheid, uh, the coloured people and the Indians lost their vote. And that was a, a great tragedy. And it was a turning point, because if South Africa had not gone down that road, then, of course, their views would have been taken seriously, because, as I say, you take people seriously if they have a vote and can elect you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I th the two other things which I, I found fascinating is probably only I could think of the Jim Crow laws uh, in the South of America, uh, where you think about people being stripped of the vote, even though they were technically allowed to. There were you know, all these obstacles put in their way. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the other aspect which I thought was fascinating is it's the only time in history when black South Africans were actually able to vote for their representatives at a national level directly. Because, of course, in South Africa today, we have a proportional representation system, so you vote for the party. Uh, but then they were it was a constituency system, so you really had the, the people deciding who they were going to be represented at, which I just, it's interesting given some of the current debates we have in South Africa about how do you keep uh, electoral officials accountable, uh, that this was already a model that was then being used 200 years ago. Oh, you're, you're absolutely right. There's also one other thing which is, uh, you know, quite, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it, it's sort of a, a slightly amusing footnote to all of this, is that, you know, uh, Cecil Rhodes, the great uh, imperialist, uh, you know, the conqueror of uh, Rhodesia, the man who thought the, there should be British rule from the Cape to Cairo, um, was at this period actually 
somebody who supported the rights of black people to have the vote. And uh, he, his was the left-wing position. I mean, it's something that people don't understand because, you know, there's been a big campaign. They got rid of his statue in Cape Town. They tried to get rid of his statue in Oxford. But actually, at this period, he actually was the person who stood for the right of black people to have the vote. His position was that all civilized men south of the Limpopo should have the vote. And by civilized, he just meant that you should have uh, wealth, property, and ability to read and write, irrespective of color. Uh, well, as there were a lot of other people who just said, no, only white people should have the vote. So uh, it's, <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of uh, historical anomalies. It's, it, it's interesting for me, Martin, your book, uh, I think about um, some books that have been written about the land question recently uh, by some mm. academics, people writing suddenly biographies about smuts. For, for me, it's interesting that it's all, these are all characters that came before apartheid. Do you think that South Africans are kind of done with the apartheid story are we digging a little bit further back into our history uh to to kind of figure out who we are and 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 what we are well i think we have to because you know there's one of the things that has been uh, a mistake in a sense in the in the way that we've conceived of the the apartheid story uh is that it it, it's portrayed now as as a fight between two peoples between uh, the National Party, which was the Afrikaner Party, the White Party, the White Racist Party, and the African National Congress. And basically, uh, it is seen as these two giants slugging it out. And that was certainly true. But when one goes back further in history, one begins to unearth what is a much more complicated history, where all sorts of other figures, other movements, other organizations came up and really played a major role. And of course, we shouldn't forget that, uh, you know, even in the 1970s and 80s, there were all sorts of other organizations like um, Black Consciousness Movement of Steve Biko, um, you know, that also played a big role in trying to op- oppose, um, uh, you know, racist rule. And, of course, there were the, 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 what, the predecessor to the current um, official opposition party in South Africa, the Democratic Alliance, um, the, which was called the Progressive Party under people like Helen Sussman. Um, you know, who really did stand up to um, white rule and said so unequivocally. Um, and, you know, you get all sorts of strange groups that, that are involved here. Uh, I mean, on, and there, there's the anomaly, of course, that in amongst the white uh, community, you have this strange situation where almost all the whites who were um, not exclusive, but the, the majority of whites who were opposed to apartheid were Jewish. And the majority of Jews were in favor of apartheid. So you always have that strange uh, relationship as well. It, it's, it's a fascinating uh, story. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you, you, you say that. I mean, I'm not sure whether the voting patterns, uh, it, it, it's kind of hard to say if you could say the whole Jewish community was in favor of apartheid. Certainly, there was a majority well, that th- weren't involved no in opposing it. it. But I mean, they would like the majority of who voted United Party, which is certainly not the party of apartheid, even though it was kind of more entrenched in the system than a, a Helen Sussman or whatever. Well, I mean, let me. My, my father was a was a German Jew who uh, you know emigrated to South Africa in the 1930s, mm. and he always told me, you know, it was extraordinary. Within six weeks of Jews arriving in South Africa, in his in his circle. Uh, they were treating um, black people exactly as, the same way as all other whites did. And he used to say to them, you know, what are you doing? You know, a few, a few weeks ago, we were in Germany. You were being, we, we were all being treated in this, in this kind of way, in this kind of racist, discriminatory way. Oh, they would say it's different. It's different. 
I mean, I'm, I'm afraid. You know, and to be honest with you, the majority of white, white um, the white population supported the the National Party, um, and the, the majority of Jews voted for uh, for, um, for for the Nationalists, or else voted. You're right, voted for the United Party, which wasn't that very, which wasn't very far away. Quite frankly, I, I mean, you, you are correct. Uh, I mean, I, I don't have the, the detailed breakdown of Jewish votes, but I don't think there was anything special about the Jewish community, except that amongst them, they had people and they threw up people who were absolutely at the forefront of the resistance to apartheid. And, you know, people like Joe Slovo, um, you know, and, and, and a whole range of them played an absolutely critical role in fighting uh, apartheid, um, including people like Ellen Sussman. Yeah, certainly uh, one of the Jewish community's favorite uh, relitigation points, if you, if you want to go down that road, Martin. Uh, we're talking to Martin Platt. He is uh, a author and uh, a specialist in international relations and history. And we're talking today a little bit about his books and some of the things that he's written. And uh, we're going to take a short break. By the way, if you want to dis- be part of the discussion, 0618951019, that's the WhatsApp line. Uh, and uh, you can also SMS us 34519 if you want to uh, ask him any questions or, or maybe you've read his books. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back just after this. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. This is the New Blue Review with me, Benji Shulman, and we're talking today to Martin Plout, who uh, works on a lot of uh, historical stuff, international relations stuff. He's a specialist in the Horn of Africa, and he's written a lot of historical works, which uh, we're discussing today. Uh, Martin, I wanted to talk to you about one of your other books as well. You've written a lot about African soldiers fighting in the Second World War, and I've always found this... uh, a fascinating topic of the role of people who are oppressed uh, or you know, are maybe not completely given their full rights in a host society then fighting on behalf uh, of, of that society and, and w- whether that's an effective strategy for people because they gain experience or maybe the admiration of the society or you learn to use weapons. And, and, and what do you think the, the consequences were? For uh, the many Africans who who fought in the Second World War against Hitler, uh, but at the same time were facing racism back home, I, it's it's a it's a huge and complex uh, story. I don't, of course, forget that uh, there were black people who fought for, um, for for Britain and against Germany in the First World War and in the Second World War. Um, in the in the tens in the hundreds thousands uh, of of people, I mean, of course, people fought on both sides in the in the First World War. There were many um, uh, Africans who were recruited, particularly in um, the East Africa campaign, um, who supported the supported the Germans. Uh, so you, you're absolutely correct that there there is this strange position of people going in and supporting, in a sense, their own oppressors. Um, and it, it is something that's not easy to easy to come to terms with. Um, I mean, in my work on the Second World War, uh, what came across to me was very strongly was that people joined for every conceivable reason. There were people who, in, for example, in in West Africa, whom we came across, uh, who were literally rounded, uh, surrounded at a, a marketplace by um, British troops put on uh, trucks and forcibly in conscripted and sent to, to the front without without any, I mean, sometimes their families didn't know where they'd been captured, what, what had happened to them, where they'd gone to. 
And you have everything all the way down to um, a situation in, for example, in Zimbabwe, what was then uh, Rhodesia, uh, where as soon as war was declared, there were some people who literally went to the doors of the British High Commission and knocked on the doors demanding to be, uh, to be, uh, to be taken in to fight Hitler because there'd been a very strong British uh, propaganda campaign um, which tried to inform black people what Hitler's uh, rule would mean for them and the position that they would be put in. And, I mean, it didn't pull its punches, you can imagine. It was absolutely graphic about the racism that Hitler, um, you know, encompassed. And so, you know, there's everything from people being forcibly conscripted to literally being, you know, demanding to fight for, for Britain. And the underlying hope always was, if we only show that we are good citizens, um, we will be given good treatment by the, our colonial masters after, um, after the war is over. They'll be grateful to us. And I'm afraid that the, the, the reality was that they never were. Um, yes, they were, they were always passing out parades and people got the odd um, bicycle you know, payment out and the, the bicycle, the famous bicycle. <laughs> I and mean, there isn't a possibly apocryphal story that white people, I think it was in Rhodesia, uh, who fought for the British were given farms and black people were given bicycles. I'm not sure it's actually true. But um, there certainly was was no sense of enduring uh, gratitude from the colonial uh, masters for one obvious reason. Uh, I mean, you know, if you look at Britain after the after the Second World War, they had so many things on their plate. The last thing they had uh, on their minds was, you know, how on earth are we going to look after these people who fought for us? They got them home. They gave them uh, uh, probably uh, you know, a couple of suits of, of, of civilian clothing, uh, you know, a few pounds in their pockets and sent them on their way. But then, you know, you see, the, the white, the, the, the Africans assumed they would get a pension. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't a pension for, for uh, I mean, you know, for example, my mother fought in, in, in the, in the, for the British uh, Navy during the Second World War. She didn't get a pension. There were no pensions. There were no war pensions. They were disability pensions, and they were paid and were paid to the African troops um, right until independence. And at independence, Britain gave lump sums to the, the newly independent countries, which were supposed to go on paying those, those disability pensions. Many of them soon disappeared. Very, very interesting. If, if you're interested at all in this uh, part of history, you can go to uh, the War Museum in, in Johannesburg, or it's the, the South African Military History Museum now, and they have a whole section on a guy called Job uh, Maseko, who, who blew up a steam line uh, uh, near Tobruk uh, in, a, in a famous story, is, is one of the, my favorite characters from uh, uh, World War II, and it certainly is, uh, is interesting to, to see what people got up to and uh, you know, the, the, how they had to fight racism uh, at home and abroad. Uh, Martin, I also want to ask you about one of your more recent books. Uh, I think a lot of people in South Africa will be quite familiar with your book on uh, who rules South Africa. It was kind of written at the height of the Zuma uh, years, and you were kind of really looking at what was going on and, and how was South Africa being controlled and where was the power center. Uh, now that we've had a sort of change of administration and, and given some of the, the complexities that are now, uh, do you think that 
that your thesis around how power operates in South Africa is still valid, or or did it change uh, when Zuma left? Well, I, I think the the one thing that I would um, stand by was, in a sense, my, the conclusion right at the end, which was that uh, you know democracy is is a fragile fragile creature in South Africa. Uh, on the one hand, people have huge respect for the constitution. I think there's nothing funnier than seeing. Uh, Julius Malema, you know, standing in the or sitting in the National Assembly and waving the Constitution at uh, <laughs> Julius at uh, uh, you know uh, Jacob Zuma, and you know when when in a sense many of the things that he asked for go against the Constitution, um, but uh, I mean you know there, there is a deep sense of of commitment to the Constitution, but at the same time there has always been this kind of underlying threat that somehow the security services. Or you know other forces, maybe even the military might be called on if if the ANC's hold on power was ever threatened. And I don't know whether this has been whether this is real. But I mean, all the kind of meetings that they've now been in KwaZulu Natal, uh, which the ANC is clearly so worried about with Jacob Zuma, still fermenting trouble, um, uh, as I understand it. Uh, you know, it, there are all these strange things that go on. And how many rumors have there been about a coup? In, I mean, a coup and outside plots and goodness knows what um, th- that keep bubbling up inside South Africa. And that is really troubling. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think we are at a bit of an, an unstable point. Uh, you know, somebody has said to me that uh, thankfully the public institutions don't always work as well as they should do. So maybe we wouldn't be able to organize a coup, but I hope we never get <laughs> to that point. Uh, well, let me ask you yeah. one question. When do you think the last uh, attempted uprising was uh, by the army uh, against the South African government? A lot. I don't know. Bombata Rebellion, maybe? Uh, no, 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 no. That that wasn't. The, I suppose it wasn't the army. army. It was just an uprising. I mean, it's a good question. When when was the last uh, uprising? Oh, well, I, <laughs> maybe just, during the First World War or the Second World yeah. War before the. Yeah, it was the, it was the First World War. It, it was the. I mean, there were threats during the Second World War, but it was the, the First World War when uh, you know the the Boerter uh, Smuts government tried to go into um, uh, Southwest Africa, then a German colony or Namibia today. Um, and there were elements of the army that there were small elements of the army that actually went over to the German side, and there were other elements within the army that 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 literally tried to ha- stage a coup. But I, as far as I know, that was the last time it ever it ever happened. And, and uh, so it should I mean, stay that way. The, the, <laughs> hmm? It should stay that way. Indeed, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, Martin, I also want to ask you about your role uh, in the apart- anti-apartheid movement and and how you think that that's playing a role in our international relations today. South Africa has this kind of funny relationship with the West, particularly the Americans uh, and some of the European powers. But particularly, I would say the British and the Netherlands, they, they kind of have a bit more respect for them because there was a lot of people that were involved in the anti-apartheid movement uh, that kind of kept the links, particularly with the ANC, but the other liberation movements as well. Uh, do you think that that plays a part in how the ANC deals with uh, Western powers, with it, some of its outlook? Or, or do you think that you know it's 25 years now and, and, and that kind of struggle history is no longer as relevant for them? Well, I think you're right. Uh, you know, the uh, there is still a, a deeply ingrained feeling, um, I think, in the ANC that 
you know, we owe it all to the uh, to the, the the Soviet Union, the East Germans, who really gave us the the weapons to fight. But if you actually look at the reality of how apartheid ended, it didn't end with the with Umkonto Isizwe marching into Pretoria with flags flying and all the rest of it. It was overthrown, in a sense, by uh, a combination of many, many, many small activities, and including things like the pension funds in the United States and across Europe, refusing to invest in South Africa, that finally persuaded the uh, apartheid government uh, that, frankly, there wasn't a way forward, that, yes, they could rule now, but in the long run, they would be finished. And uh, so, you know, in actual fact, the ANC was much more um, owed much more to to the Western uh, support than it ever did to to the Soviet Union and the East Germans and the others. But they they don't really want to acknowledge that because they don't want to accept that the Umkontoises were was frankly pretty blooming useless. I mean, not because they were were not brave; they were exceptionally brave, and they died, and they they were they had terrible suffering. Um, including uh, from uh, amongst their own people, you know, they were badly treated in the camps. But I mean, I'm not trying to suggest in any shape, way or form that they didn't play a role or that they weren't brave. But at the end of the day, it wasn't the decisive factor. The decisive factor clearly was this pressure, the worldwide pressure, which was which did actually begin in London, where the headquarters of the anti-apartheid movement was founded. And uh, I mean, I knew these people well. Uh, I mean, people like Mike Terry, for example, who gave up decades of his life. He's hardly known uh, in, in, in South Africa today, but he was the the uh, secretary of the anti-apartheid movement. He was a man who literally worked for, I think, 20, if not more years, morning, noon and night. And he worked with the with the everybody from the churches to the Communist Party to try to make sure that there was a united front against apartheid. And it was extremely effective. Yeah, it is. It is interesting how uh, how people are remembered, particularly on the international uh, relations scene. And I do actually wish that you know we have this O.R. Tambo Award uh, for for people from the outside who helped South Africa become free. And I actually wish that more people would get nominated uh, for it, so that that kind of history can be brought up. It's interesting, that was very much a, f- a feature of the Labour Party uh, back in the day. You know, the Labour Party was the anti-apartheid party in many respects, although later on the Conservatives came around as as well. You were a Labour Party member, Martin, you still are. What do you make of the, the Labour Party today? Do you think that it's, uh, with its present leadership, is, is, is still kind of sticking to that mandate, or are we dealing with quite a different party? Well, just let me uh, go backwards for a moment. Mm. I, I wasn't just a member. I actually I was the secretary of the the Africa secretary for the party for about five years, oh, okay. running up to 90, uh, 1984. Um, so you were right in the thick I, of things. I, sorry? You were right in the thick of things. Oh, I was. And if I might just relate a very small incident which happened the very first day I took up my job. Um, it was that I came into the office and there in my uh, in-tray in the Labour Party headquarters was a resolution which had been passed by the Africa Committee, of which I was the, the secretary, had just just walked into the job, and was going to the International Committee and then into to the National Executive. And it said that we should recognize the ANC as the sole legitimate representative of the people of South Africa, and uh, which was the status that Swapo of Namibia had. Um, and I, I thought for a moment, yeah, sounds like a good idea. And then I suddenly thought about it. And I thought, hang on a second. 
If we do this, it means we've got to de-recognize the Pan-Africanist Congress. It puts us at odds with the OAU and the, the Organization of African Unity, now the African Union, and the United Nations. It also means that if we want to speak to somebody like Helen Sussman, we've got to go and get permission from the ANC because they're the sole legitimate representative. I don't think we can go down this road. And I raised this with my uh, head of the international department and with the, the uh, head of the international committee. And they were horrified that I was raising this question, but they couldn't see a reason why I was wrong. So they called a meeting with the ANC and there I, they came along and uh, you know, there were four or five of them. And they just said, what on earth are you doing? So I said, look, you know, I'm not suggesting the ANC is the most important body in, South, in, in representing South Africa. But you're not the only ones. There's the Black Consciousness Movement, all the trade unions. You don't control them. Uh, there's the PAC. You know, it's not for the British Labour Party to make this decision. This is a decision for the people of South Africa in a free election. And they couldn't think of a reason why I was wrong. And they couldn't come up with an excuse, but they were absolutely furious that I had made this. And frankly, it, it, I think the fact that the Labour Party wouldn't go along with this blunted their entire strategy. Because at that moment, that was what they wanted. They wanted to get this, uh, this kind of unique uh, imprimatur, shall we say, of being the sole legitimate representative. And they didn't get it. And, um, you know, they loathed me from then on with all sorts of rumours surrounding my my background and oh you know he's a bit of a dark character you know maybe he's uh, you know maybe he's working for boss and all the rest of it i mean that kind of thing uh, you know i mean but there's nothing you can say you can't prove you're not working for somebody um <laughs> so it was an unpleasant period for me but i mean you know that's life yeah absolutely i think uh an interesting uh, an interesting part of our history there was a great book written uh a few years ago um called the people's war and uh, the they talk a little bit about this aspect on the political side about the sole representativeness and what does mm-hmm. that mean in a South, in a South African context. We're talking to Martin Plout. Uh, he is a researcher and a writer and an author. And we're just discussing with him uh, historical and contemporary politics. We'll be back just after the break. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. 101.9 Chai Fem. This is the New Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman. We're talking to Martin Plout today. Uh, he is an author and a researcher and a writer. And uh, he uh, and uh, he's written a number of books which you're chatting to him about. Uh, Martin, before the break, uh, we, we were talking about your, your anti-apartheid uh, movement credentials, your work, uh, and, and your, your, your work in the Labour Party. Uh, I did ask you, where do you think the party is at the moment, particularly with some of these issues around anti-Semitism with Corbyn and the sort of kind of far left uh, views he has on nationalization, which are kind of similar, I think, to uh, maybe Julius. Where's the party at, would you say, at the moment? Well, um, shall we say, if I, if I take off my academic hat and... Uh... Assume that one of, of a party activist. I mean, I have been in the Labour Party now since I arrived in, in uh, the UK in uh, 1978, I think it was. So it's a long time. Um, you know, I mean, I must be frank with you. I'm not a fan of, of Jeremy Corbyn. But then, you know, I've never I've never been a uh, somebody who backed. A, a, I support the leaders of my party because, you know, they are they elected and all the rest of it. 
But I, I've never been a, a fan. And, you know, the idea that I would go around, you know, singing, oh, Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> at any gathering, I mean, is absolutely farcical. I would never have done it for um, Michael Foote or, uh, you know, Gordon Brown or Tony Blair. I mean, you know, I don't go around hero worshipping my leaders. I think leaders are there to be, um, you know, supported, tolerated and frequently criticized. And frankly, I would never change my position on that. But I mean, you know, to be honest with you, um, you know, Corbyn has a, a, a solid background in, shall we say, a, a opposing apartheid. I mean, on that, he, he, he has, um, you know, he certainly has a, has a good record. Um, but then he opposed, he, he supported every single um, left-wing movement internationally around the world. And, you know, I remember him frequently coming to meetings at which I would, at the House of Commons, where, you know, somebody would be holding a meeting on, shall we say, Eritrea or something like that. And he'd pop in for five minutes and say, oh, yes, I'm, I, I, you have my support. And that was kind of his idea of support. Um, and he, he, was, he was like a sort of uh, a, a cricket that would jump from one cause to the next. Uh, I mean, some he, some causes he has really played a major role in. I, I, I don't want to underestimate it. And, you know, he's, he's certainly passionate about, about Palestine. But, you know, does, does he raise the issue of South Sudan, for example? Um, I don't think so. Um, so. And, I mean, you're quite right in, in, in looking at the policies that he is pursuing. Some of them are pretty old-fashioned. Uh, they are old-style nationalization of the means of production, sort of old-fashioned Marxist uh, concepts. You know, personally, you know, I, I don't give a damn whether the railways are run by the state or run by private uh, companies. What I want is a, is a railway system which gets me from A to B uh, at a decent price, is clean and, and runs efficiently. Um, you know, how it happens, I don't think is particularly important. And I'm just, you know, while there, there's been, you know, under, from Thatcherism onwards, there was this huge move away from statist uh, solutions and nationalization towards the private sector. And perhaps it went, it, perhaps it's gone too far and perhaps we should move back in the other direction. I have no problem with that, but I'm, I'm, I don't see it as a religion. I think you, sh you need to approach these things as a, um, as a pragmatist. And, you know, if, if, the, if the state can do a better job, fine. I have no problem with that. I mean, given but the I dog show that is the, the Brexit negotiations with the Conservatives, I mean, do you think he could win an election? Because he might have to, given what's going on. Well, you know, since I was wrong about um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the election of, uh, of Hillary Clinton and just about everything else, I'm not going to predict who, who's going to, uh, to, to win. <laughs> win the to win, win the next election or even when the election will be. Because, I mean, we are in the most unstable period of British politics that I know since, uh, since I arrived in, in, in this country, whatever it was, 40 years ago. Um, because, I mean, literally, within, between now and the end of, of March, I'd be doing a little poll with people, uh, with my friends. I asked them six questions. Do you think any of, which of the following will happen? The Labour Party will split? The Conservative Party will split? Theresa May, the Prime Minister, will get some Brexit legislation through Parliament? We'll have an, another referendum? We'll have an election? And I can assure you, that my friends, you know, all right, we mostly sort of North London kind of um, left wing people. But I mean, you know, there is absolutely no consensus on any one of those those positions. Nobody knows where we're going. Absolutely not a clue.
Um, and that is, uh, it's, it's actually quite worrying to be in such a f- uh, sort of febrile and, 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 and uh, there's, there's no stability in, in, in British politics. We, and British politics has been stable for years. Now it's not. Yeah, certainly a very interesting time to be looking at British politics. Martin, that's pretty much all the time we have for today. I didn't even get to ask you about your writings about Zimbabwe. I believe that's something that you're working on at the moment. Uh, But if people want to check out your books, check out your writings, where can they have a look? Well, um, you know, if they just <laughs> do a short Google search for me, uh, you know, Martin Platt, you'll, you'll see the, the books I've, I've, I've written. Um, I, funnily enough, I'm just working on one now, not for a South African audience, but for an international audience called Understanding South Africa. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm working on that with, with, a, uh, with a South African author as well, as well. And we're going to try and, you know, in, in one simple book, book put everything away and <laughs> designed to come out after the next election. Can you tell me when the next South African election is going to be? Because I'd love to know. Word on the street is is in April, May. But uh, you, again, you, you wouldn't want to predict these things in South Africa either. <laughs> I'd better get writing. <laughs> Martin Platt, thank you so much for being on the New Blue Review. And uh, please keep up the, the good work uh, on, your, on your history and your, your politics. Pleasure. Martin Platt there uh, joining us all the way from London. He uh, is part of the BBC and uh, was part of the BBC as a writer and an author. And we were chatting to him about uh, some of the things that he thinks and some of the things that that he does. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back just after that. Stay relevant and up to date. This is 101.9 High FM. New Blue Review with me, Benji Shulman on 101.9 High FM. I uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed that. And by the way, talking a bit about South African history, uh, we are inviting the whole Jewish community to join us in paying tribute to South African legend and great friend of the Jewish community, Prince Magasutu Butelezi, in honor of his 90th birthday. Uh, he will we'll be acknowledging his accomplishments and thanking him for his firm support of our community and the state of Israel. We encourage you all to uh, join us. Monday the 8th of October, uh, that's tonight, uh, at 5.30pm at Glen Hazel Shul in Yeshiva College for Mincha Prayers, followed by a tribute ceremony. And this event is hosted by uh, the South African Board of uh, Deputies, the South African Zionist Federation, SA Friends of Israel, and is also endorsed by the Office of the Chief Rabbi. There is no charge, however, booking is required for catering purposes. So please uh, do let us know. Uh, you can call 011-645-2601 or you can visit the SAZF Facebook page for more details. So, uh, yeah, Mangosutu um, Putelezi is there. And uh, you should uh, feel free to come through and see a bit of a legend of South African politics. And there's actually so much going on at the moment uh, with uh, events that are happening. Um, I think we spoke a little bit about it, but... Uh, this Rock in the Red Zone, which is a, a movie about Sterot, uh, is happening on the 25th of October and basically about what's happening over there uh, in terms of the rockets and uh, Hamas and the Gaza Strip and whatever. A really good film uh, if you like to mix rock genres with uh, with rockets. It is, uh, it is a good film. So uh, check out the Zionist Federation for that as well because that is another event which is coming up. Now, I did want to do uh, a couple of other things other than uh, just do the interview today. And something which I came across, which I just thought was absolutely uh, fascinating, is that there is a a new archive f- 
photography footage that has been discovered, and I think it's a, an absolutely amazing story. Uh, it's very, very long, so if you, if you want to have a look at it, you can check it out on Haaretz. There's a whole article on it. But basically, there is something called the American Colony Hotel Photography Department Photographic Collection. It's a very, very, very long name. Uh, and if you're a regular to uh, Jerusalem, you will know the American Colony Hotel, which was sort of started by a group of Christians that, that uh, were living in, in uh, what was then Palestine, uh, in, in Israel today. Uh, it's in the Sheikh Jarrah district, kind of East Jerusalem area. And whilst they were building this hotel and kind of living together in a bit of a commune, they decided that they wanted to... Uh, basically make a bit of extra money. And some of them were self-taught photographers. And so they started taking pictures of uh, Israel and and, uh, and the people there and then selling them to tourists and to different people uh, and, and also, you know, taking them just for, for scientific purposes, botany and whatever. And the whole story is about how a large portion of this collection of photographs was lost uh, after bomb blasts and uh, people had stuff stolen and, and whatever. And for years and years and years, uh, bits and pieces of the archive have been discovered. And there's an amazing story if you go look at it. Uh, at in, in Haaretz, uh, a large part of it has now uh, been discovered again and, and people are looking at it uh, and, and dealing with it. And you can go look at the story, but there's some great stuff uh, that is sort of available to look at. Uh, they have, uh, for example, a fantastic picture of uh, British, Arab and Bedouin officials having a meeting in Amman. Uh, obviously, that's Jordan in 1921. And it's also in color, which is, is quite remarkable because you think about photographs of that period all being black and white. Uh, but you have these color photographs and people wearing a kind of traditional Arab and Muslim and Druze garb. And, but they're standing in front of a propeller plane from, uh, from <coughs> Britain and meeting different British officials. Uh, and you can see people on the Galilee and you can see what Jerusalem looked like uh, in the 1920s at the turn of the century and, and the old city and some of what, the, what was the new city uh, coming at that point. And you can see some of uh, basically what life was like at the time through the lens of these photographers. And it's absolutely amazing. One of the pictures which I thought was absolutely fascinating is a, um, a picture of arsenic, uh, soaked corn or, or, or bran and uh, the reason that they were soaking bran in arsenic was that there was a massive locust e epidemic uh, between the, the periods of 1915 and 1930 and uh, they were kind of hoping that if the, the locusts ate, uh, ate the um, uh, the bran then they would die and not eat the crops and uh, you know they attacked the um, they attacked the crops in 1915, but you can actually see that these people using the watering cans, soaking up the bran, you know, they've got boots on. Uh, and it's just an absolutely kind of uh, something you wouldn't think of in the Holy Land, kind of locusts, very <laughs> Egyptian and uh, Exodus and, and whatever. And there you have people... Um, doing that there's another one of women making dresses uh, in a dress shop uh, as well and it's just a, a fascinating story and a, a key insight 
into uh, the the place of, of of this collection. So if you want to hear about how they found it and and how they managed to get hold of these new pictures, uh, then you can you can go and have a look on Haaretz and look up the missing American colony photographs if you're into that kind of thing. I think it's a a really, really great article, particularly if you like history or photography, which is something we've been doing a lot of today. Which also brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much to Craig, who's been pushing all the big red buttons, Vusi on the sound, Mandy, who does the production. And thank you to, to you, dear listener, for listening. We'll be back next week on the New Blue Review.